This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Please help me welcome the legendary Tippi Hedren. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'd like to start at the beginning of your life and your career um, right. in modeling. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your early days in Minnesota, your move to California, and then the dramatic shift to New York and modeling. That's a big, that's a lot to encompass. Okay. Um, uh, we lived in this little tiny town, I mean really little, uh, in southern Minnesota um, uh, called Lafayette. And... Um, uh, it was so tiny. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know that it uh, has gained any any more people it's, than it was when I was there. Uh, but um, uh, my, my sister and I went back to see it a couple of years ago, and it was almost like going to a movie set. You know, it was just so amazing. It was just this tiny, tiny little town. But it was, it was uh, right for what we were doing then, and of course it, it um, became much too small and we moved. Uh, but it was um, uh, an amazing start for a family. And then you were discovered on the street in Morningside, Minnesota, um, by someone looking to have you be a model for yeah, a I, d- I got off the streetcar. I was coming home from West High School, and um, this lady handed me her card. And she said, would you ask your mother to bring you down to Donaldson's department store? We'd like to have you model in the, in the Saturday morning fashion shows. And, you know, I, di- I didn't really quite know what that meant. You know, but I thought, it sounds kind of wonderful, a fashion show. And uh, uh, so I talked to my mother about it, and she thought it sounded fine. And uh, we went to talk to them, and that is what started the whole modeling career. And uh, what, what later started the whole ball rolling, and here I am here today. Um, but it was um, uh, an amazing... Uh, Beginning, and uh, I'm just kind of glad that I had the, uh, I don't know, the guts to say, yeah, let's look into this. You know, because I could have very easily, because I was a shy girl, I was not an outgoing kind of um, type of child. And um, it was kind of an amazing thing that that happened. So how did it happen that after you moved to New York and you're working as an Eileen Ford model and being on the cover of magazines and then you appear in this small commercial, not small, it was on the national television, mm-hmm. how is it that you were discovered? How did that whole, um, how did the machinery get behind bringing you to Universal, meeting the Hitchcocks, Lee Wasserman? How did you come to the attention <laughs> of everyone? What was that whole experience like for you? Yeah, well, it was amazing. But you know, when, when in the 60s, with the advent of that little black box, 
you know, that little thing that we were... And remember the... Well, I don't know if any of you remember when we first got our first television sets. And it was this little tiny little thing, but it was in this great big box. (laughs) Do any of you remember that? I do. Um, But anyway, it was an an amazing uh, tool to have in your own home that you could see all over the world and television shows and and amazing things that were going on in the world. It was quite an innovation. Um, And um, along with the the television set came the commercials, and with the commercials came um, people who needed to be in those commercials. And and somebody said, thought I would be really good for that. And um, turned out that... that, uh, I really enjoyed that part of my life and, and uh, getting off the streetcar that day and somebody saying, would you want to be in, the, <laughs> in this commercial, uh, was pretty amazing. And, um, and that's how that whole thing started. And then you were approached was... by, by an agent yes. who said, your, your presence is desired at Universal a prominent director wants to meet you. Yes. And what was that was, meeting like when you got the information about what was going to about to happen to your well, career? Well, when I, uh, I was uh, asked to go to the studio uh, to meet with um, uh, this producer, and uh, it turned out to be Alfred Hitchcock. And at that point, he had already been doing his television shows and... Uh, uh, every week, and um, he, he, you know how at, at the opening of his show, he stood in his with profile with that enormous. <laughs> I mean, it just makes you laugh to look at it, to think about it. Well, when I went to go to the meeting, that's how he opened the door, and I almost could I, I could hardly keep myself from laughing. <laughs> it was you know anyway I I did control myself and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I did end up going under contract to him, which was pretty amazing. Now, they shot an, ex- an incredibly expensive $25,000 screen test with yes. Martin Balsam and yes. you. And uh, if you're interested, that footage is available. It's on the DVD and Blu-ray, and it's circulating online. It's kind of an incredible screen test. I mean, yes. for someone who has never acted before... Oh, it was ridiculous. Yeah, but you're, was, you don't show any fear or any kind of uh, uh, vulnerability. You're completely holding your own with a very polished Hollywood actor. Isn't that what? amazing? Yes. I think it is. <laughs> how, who, how did you prepare for that? I mean, I know that there was some coaching from, from Alma and from Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, they um, were my drama coaches. Yeah, so how did yes. you prepare for, for even that screen test before you even got onto the, onto the uh, film? I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm fearless, and um, which I think gets me through a, a lot of situations. And um, uh, I don't know. Keeps me calm under duress, and uh, I'm I'm very thankful for that capability. You are fearless, and we're going to delve into that in a few minutes when we talk about Roar. Um, okay, so you get the screen test. You obviously tested quite well, and you're cast in, this, in, the, in the birds. Um, how did that production begin? Um, how did you train for it? Same thing, the sort of coaching from, from, from the Hitchcocks. How did you get um, prepared for that role when it's your first film and you're basically the lead? Uh, 
Well, I had uh, Alfred Hitchcock and his wife Alma as my drama coaches, which was fairly amazing. And um, uh, I, I don't know whether it was the grace of God or whatever it was, but I was able to get into that character and um, understand her. Uh, and uh, I was able to pull it off. Do you have a favorite memory or um, a part of the film that you are seen that you just sort of look back at and you kind of marvel at? Well, maybe your own performance, but just the idea of being in this film or something that you love about the film itself. Well, I liked, I liked the character of Melanie Daniels. I liked her, and, uh, and um, I, I tried to give her a little bit of a, you know, a sense of humor and, and, um, uh, and strength. Uh, because to do the, the things that she did, you had to have a little bit of both, and um, um, you know, and I was dealing with some some heavyweights in the business, and I had to come up to that. I had to stand up to that, mm-hmm. or it wasn't going to work. Now, famously, you've talked about some of the trouble that began on the set, uh, primarily between you and Mr. Hitchcock. How early did um, you begin to understand that you were becoming more than just an object of the film, but an object of his attention? Uh, fortunately, that wasn't until quite late in the in the, the whole filming of the of the birds. Thank goodness, because it was, uh, you know, I I I'll, I'll bet you that, that half of the women here have had those kinds of situations with in the workplace. And it is nothing new. It's nothing new under the sun. Never will be new. And it, it's age old. And we, we as women, will live through this for the you know for the millennium. Um, and uh, we have to teach our daughters that um, you don't ever ever have to put up with that kind of situation. You walk away from it. You you are very strong, and you don't have to put up with that. And get out of it as soon as you can. If you can do it graciously, that's the way to do it. And if it isn't gracious, walk away. Um, But with that um, particular situation, I had to walk away. And um, uh, it was was difficult. I was in a horrible position. Uh, And... um, uh, it was, you know, it was just sad. It was just sad because why? Why? You know, here, here was this wonderful opportunity, you know, to work with really, really great people in the motion picture business. And then to have that stupid situation arise. It was just, it was tragic. And it must have made it even more complex because you had two extraordinarily difficult scenes that you had to, to do um, with all of this sort of psychological backdrop going on. Yes. One of which, of course, would be the, the telephone booth, which yes. did not go as planned. 
Yeah. Um, what happened on the tele- telephone booth sequence? Oh, with the glass, you mean? Well, um, uh, the bird was supposed supposed to come down and uh, um, and hit the glass, and they had told me that it was shatterproof glass, and uh, <laughs> they had told me it was shatterproof glass, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I believed that, and why wouldn't I believe that? And, uh, of course, uh, after that, uh, that fake bird hit the glass, they spent the entire afternoon picking shards of glass off out of this side of my face. Um, but I don't know. I could never accuse anyone of it, of it being deliberate. And I never would accuse anybody of it being deliberate. And the other sequence that... Obviously, most people write about when they talk about the the real um, difficulty of making this film is the five days you spent in the upper bedroom with the birds. With the birds. Now they were supposed to be mechanical, yes. fake birds, but instead, what was the switch that they did for that scene? Oh well, you know when you when you read a script, there are questions that you ask the producer or the director. Uh, about how would that particular scene be done. And, of course, that was one of the most important questions I asked was at the ending of the film, uh, where I open that door and uh, I walk, oh, uh, go in the room and I am attacked by all of these birds. Um, how is that scene going to be filmed? What are those birds going to be made out of? And I was told that they were going to be fake birds. And uh, at that point, I had no reason not to believe they were going to be fake birds. And, um, and it wasn't until the morning that we started filming that uh, I walked onto the set and there wasn't a fake bird in sight. But there were cages of real birds, and uh, bird trainers with gauntlets, leather gauntlets up to their shoulders. And uh, there were cartons of birds, uh, and with these gauntlets that they could hurl them at me, which they did for a week. And what was the the sort of physiological effect of this, this insane five days... You know, what did you? What happened to you at the end of that whole? Shooting? Well, by the end of the of the scene, I was uh, lying on the floor, with the door against the door, and um, they had a bird tied to uh, this shoulder, and um, a couple of uh, the rest of them were tied around my body, and uh, the bird that was on my shoulder. Uh, jumped and got very, very close to my my face, and I, you know, protected myself. And uh, but I was so exhausted by that time, I just got all of them off of me and just sat and just burst into tears. And um, uh, everybody left the set. Isn't that amazing? 
It just yeah. left me there. And how long it took you a week, right, yeah. to recover? And I, I managed to drive home. I remember I had a little red uh, convertible, little sports car. And I managed to drive it home. And I had, I, I met a friend of mine from New York who was a, a, a doctor. Uh, and he was in town for just a, a, a two days, and I met him. Um, and um, he said he has never seen anyone as tired as I. Never, ever had he And he was concerned, how was I even going to get home? However, I did, and I slept for two weeks. Two weeks, solid. So the film finally wraps, um, and they eventually production restarts. You finish the film, and now you're out promoting the film around the world and across the country. Um, what's it like to go from you know a very uh, well-known, um, high-profile model to now becoming a global movie star on your first film? Oh, it was fun. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> no, it, was, it was it was amazing, and it was fun and exciting, and. Uh, uh, oh, I went to Europe, uh, and uh, yeah, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. It was great, fun. Did you have that issue where you couldn't go out in public, people would recognize you immediately, or did you have a little bit of anonymity still left? I still had a lot of an anonymity, but there were, you know, the, the, um, the big events where, where the birds was being played, and... Uh, uh, it was um, at the Cannes Film Festival. We opened. We opened the f- film festival, and uh, you know, so there was a lot of a lot of uh, notoriety beginning. Now you found out about uh, being cast for Marnie while you were still shooting the birds. Yes. And so, how did you? I mean, that's quite an, a thrill uh, that you're coming back for Hitchcock's next film. So it's not just sort of one off. This is now like uh, a real. Yes. Um, uh, honor that you've been given, that you're doing this a second time. How did you prepare for Marnie? Because it's an extremely different role. Um, I mean, for totally, those who haven't seen it, it's, totally different. you know, the, the and range is everywhere. I was, uh, Grace Kelly was supposed to play that role. And uh, apparently the, uh, um, her, um, what would you call it? Her, the, the her government of monarchy, Monica. Yeah, the yeah. The sort of federation, if you will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they said no. They right? said no. They she couldn't be a, in the movies any longer. Yeah. Well. Anyway, uh, it, it 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 wasn't going to work for Grace, and um, so I was given the role, mm-hmm. which was awesome. And so it's a completely different role. And so yes. did you draw on um, a different set of tools? Did you work very closely oh, with, yes. with, with Hitchcock on, on figuring out how to play Marnie? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I did a, a lot of reading and, uh, uh, about her character. And uh, uh, I was, um, it was really, you know, there was an acting role. Because the range is everywhere from you're a thief and then you're a yes, victim and then you're regressing yes. to childhood and you're kind of moving throughout in everywhere. all different kinds of emotional yes. registers. It was an awesome role. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How did, and that, that production also had 
the same complications, but p- perhaps even more so than, oh, than the birds. Yes. Because um, in your book, you talk about how um, Hitchcock's obsession with you was growing and yes. creating new problems on set. Huge problems, yes. It, uh, uh, you know, there is n- uh, probably nothing worse than being the object of someone's obsession if you're not interested. Any of that ever happened to any of you ladies out there? I've <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really... Uh, and then when you're in a situation where... Uh, you know, it was sort of like my job was depending on it. And it was, it w- it was a nightmare. I cannot begin to tell you what a nightmare my life was like. By the end of the film, you were being referred to by him only as... As the girl. The girl. The girl. Tell the girl. (laughs) So I'm just curious, you know, part of what what happened really is the old seven-year contract kind of classical Hollywood studio model, which is that in today's world, if this was happening, you would just not work with that director and move on. That's right. Yes. But the problem with the old Hollywood model was, yeah. great as it was for many who got stability out of that work, was you were contracted to Alfred Hitchcock, and yes. you couldn't get... He had to say yes to anyone who wanted to, to loan you out to another production. So that had a very dramatic impact on Absolutely the next few years. Absolutely, it did. And there were, there were some yeah. films that you were hope, hoping to have been in and yes. heard later that you might have been in. Yes, and uh, uh, it was um, a, a true nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So after, uh, I'm going to turn to Roar, because I feel like I just have to move to this incredible film. (laughs) And if you haven't seen this film or um, heard about it, this is worth, uh, definitely worth exploring uh, later today. Can you tell us about Roar, um, how it came about from the work that you had been doing in the films you had shot in Africa in the late 1960s, and then how you got the idea for Roar and began working on it? Uh, well, Roar came about. Uh, I was married to a man who was a, a, a producer, and um, we I did two films in in Africa, in South Africa, back to back. So we stayed there. We uh, were able to to um, just live there for a while, which was kind of wonderful. And uh, we were able to go to visit the animals and see them as they actually live and, and um, uh, watch them and, and uh, how amazing it is to see all of that. Uh, I am a, I've always been a huge animal lover and uh, it was always, always my ideal to go to Africa to watch the animals in the wild and see how they live and, and um, really kind of get to know them as they really should be. And um, it was a really a great time of my life. I just absolutely adored it. And um, um, while, while we were there, we decided to do a movie about the animals in the wild, and we chose the big cats to be our movie stars, which is a romantic notion. Big one. <laughs> <laughs> and this film, I mean, I, you know, um, 
this film, <laughs> it's hard to even begin. I'll just say um, it took nine years of principal <laughs> photography on and off. Uh-huh. Uh, it cost $14 million. Mm-hmm. Um, it featured all measure of cast and crew being hospitalized. Mm-hmm. You, you, you broke your leg and developed gangrene. Uh, Jan Nabant, the, the famous cinematographer and director of Speed and Twister, was a DP on your film. He was, uh, he was effectively scared. scalped uh, by one of the big cats. Yeah. Took, what, 140 stitches oh, to repair off. his... It was a um, Your daughter, Melanie Griffith, who appears in the role, yeah, she was also... Yeah, she also... I think she needed 50 stitches to close yeah. the... So, um, and there were... And I'm forgetting... Or oh, that's not, just... The, that, that's yeah. just several of the accidents. Right, I'm only... I'm worth the... <laughs> Tip of the iceberg Just on this grazing one. Yeah, I'm grazing. Yeah. Yes, and and your your then husband was hospitalized numerous times. Oh, they were going to name a wing after him at the Palmdale Hospital. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm just. Uh, I'm just really um, interested to know just what kept you moving forward on this production. Was it the desire to really show people the wonder of these kind of animals and your desire, or is it just the passion to finish this project? I think it was just the passion. Yeah. To get it done. To, to finish it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an amazing project that feels like it only could come out of the 1970s. It feels like oh, it's Oh, I a... think you're absolutely right. I mean, it was, a, it was unique. It was... Uh, uh, you know, and we had all of these people with us who stood right by us and just kept along with us. And, and uh, how we did it, I, I really... Uh, I, where we got the stamina and the um, the gumption to do it, and all of that, and and the money kept coming in to do it. I mean, it was it was it was amazing. It was stunningly amazing. Because you were was. living and working alongside big cats. Yes. This is not. Um, this is not. Behind fences, these are not on leashes. These are not necessarily trained to be docile. These are real animals. We, yes, and 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 we were actually they'd be right alongside of us. That were, I mean, with all of us, with the the crew, with everybody. It was totally insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. I don't let that happen now with the animals. Nobody touches the animals. There are fences, and nobody touches the animals. Which is a great lead-in, because one of the things that the film gave you, of course, was the Shambhala Preserve. Yes. Um, which is that where the animals were living you is your home, and also yes. is you dedicated to their, um, their, their, their living space and their habitat. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about Shambhala and the Roar Foundation? Yeah, um, the the, um, the Roar Foundation is the financial support arm. It's the five hundred one c three. We are uh, um, we operate totally on donation, including my own. And uh, the animals are all in big areas. They're not in little cages. Uh, n- nobody has one on one contact with them any longer. And I stopped that. So many years ago, I don't even remember. But I remember where I was when I said, not one more person is going to be hurt. Because somebody had just had an accident. I gathered everybody together and I said, no more, ever. 
And you know what? They were all disappointed. They were all angry with me because they liked that. They liked being able to be a friend to a tiger or a lion. And it was a really special kind of relationship. But it's dangerous. And I had to, and I was the boss, and it was time for me to say, okay, no more. No more, ever. And there hasn't been any since then either. And um, um, so ever, all the animals are on lockdown, they're in big areas, and uh, um, uh, we have holding areas in each of the, of the areas that the animals are in, and the animals are fed, and in those areas, and then the crew goes into the bigger areas and does the cleaning and whatever, and when the, the animals need veterinary care, they're in the smaller area, and it's very organized. <laughs> it's not the 70s <laughs> and anymore. And nobody gets, huh? It's not the 70s <gasps> anymore, right? No, it isn't the 70s anymore. <laughs> Maybe going back to the past a little bit, I'm, uh, I'm interested. You, you did attend uh, Alfred Hitchcock's funeral in 1980. I did. And I'm interested in this idea that you say in your book that it's really important to sometimes divorce the artist from the art. Yes. And that um, I'm curious about your thoughts about that because there's been a lot of conversations about Roman Polanski and even this year between Nate Parker and Casey Affleck. <laughs> and I'm interested in your thoughts about this notion. Like, do you feel, because especially after what you went through, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, you are enormously respective of, respectful of his work, but obviously yes. have this kind of background, do you feel that you can do that? you can divorce the, the artist from the yes, artist. Yes, and I, I could, and I did. And uh, because he was one of the most famous uh, filmmakers in our industry, and uh, uh, I don't think that could be taken away from him or should be taken away from him. So this is an, you, you're now the, uh, the matriarch of a... Of a of burgeoning Hollywood dynasty, You're like the new Barrymores. Right? I you, am. You are. You have, yes. uh, of course, Melanie Griffith and Dakota Johnson now in, yes. uh, in a whole new um, uh, franchise. How does it feel? Because you didn't intend to become an actor at all, and now you've got oh, three generations of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of curious about your own sense of this tiny little town in Minnesota, the whole family legacy now of actors and, and, and also other family members who've been actors. How do you feel about that and Roar and Shambhala and all the things that have happened to you? I think it's, I think it's amazing. I think it's just stunning. But, but um, uh, what I think is um, uh, the best part of it is that I have said, okay, here is a door that was opened for me I like what I see on the other side of it, and I walked through it. I almost called my book The Open Door, because um, I think every one of us, we've all had that happen. You've had something brought to you, suggested to you, and you either like it, and you walk through that door, or you slam it shut, or quietly close it, or whatever. But I, how many doors have been opened to, to all of you? I bet a bunch of them. And I, I really came so close to calling my book The Open Door. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's been a lot of doors that have been opened to me that, that um, um, I have walked through and been very, very pleased with and, and uh, satisfied and... and uh, 
there's a lot of them that I've closed very slammed closed <laughs> and um, uh, I could write a book about them too <laughs> it wouldn't be a very long book but <laughs> the closed door the closed door the closed door <laughs> she sounds fascinating <laughs> I better sell a bunch of those <laughs> Do you hope to keep acting? Are you still acting? Are you still interested? No, in you it? know, I don't know that I would want to anymore. Um, and it's not, you know, and you know what it's all about. I really don't want to get up at six o'clock in the morning anymore. <laughs> and that's what it's really all about. And I really don't want to get up at six o'clock in the morning anymore. And I don't, I don't necessarily want all those rules and regulations that you have to go through. And I don't have to. So... Uh, I think it would take one hell of a role to get me out. And Shambhala is nowhere near down near Hollywood, right? You're, you're quite far away from from LA. Well, I'm, it's a it's a good hour. Yeah. Yeah. So six a.m. would be a hard. It hard would drive. be very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> very difficult. All right, I have one more question for you. I'm okay. just curious. Say someone picks up your films and this interview a hundred years from now. I'm kind of curious. What do you what do you want them to know about? Um, about your work and about what it is that you tried to do with, uh, with uh, Shambhala and the animals. What is it that most matters to you for people knowing about what you have oh, done? Oh, I think the, the animals are the most important, most important thing. And, then, and uh, uh, just getting to know that there are beings on our planet that need to be understood and cared for uh, in a way that uh, has nothing to do with with uh, um, with our own uh, uh, selfishness, but for what they need, and um, uh, you know, and, and we're so fortunate with all the television that we have now, and what we are able to to see, and uh, there's some brilliant people that are doing shows about animals and showing us what what uh, is going on in the animal community and how much need they have. They, they uh, need the help that they need and, um, and what we can do to, to uh, understand them and, and uh, help them and help our young people understand the need to, to help animals. And you can do it with your own pets. You know, try to understand them better and uh, what their needs are, and um, how to make their lives better with, it, um, uh, with the care of them and the understanding of what they, what they need, not just what we want to give them. Thank you very much. Please let me, please join me in saying thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.